Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 479. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this wonderful network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with Stephen Kelly. Stephen is the chair of Tech Nation, the UK's leading growth platform for tech companies and entrepreneurs, as well as the Algorithm People, a leading transport decarbonization firm. Stephen was appointed chair of the Science and Technology Honours Committee in December 2021 and joined the number 10 Innovation Fellowship Board in 2021 as well. Previously, Stephen was CEO of three listed companies, including Sage, Microfocus and Cordiant. In this conversation with Steve, we discuss his experiences as a top executive, the ways that leadership has changed and the new demands on leaders, the different cultures of entrepreneurship, working on the customer experience, purpose and prioritization. We also look at issues of gaining trust, failing fast and learning better, and a whole lot more. You'll find all the show notes on mentordial.com. And if you have a moment, please do consider the drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Stephen Kelly, what a pleasure to have you on my show. You are the chair of Tech Nation, former CEO of three listed companies, an angel investor, a man about town, a man who knows a lot about tech. You also work with the government or in the government, I should almost say. Uh, closely. And uh, I would love for you in your own words, Stephen, tell us, who is Stephen Kelly? Yeah, um, I guess fundamentally a company builder, entrepreneur, uh, very fortunate to have spent almost 10 years at Oracle back in the 80s and 90s, working with brilliant people like Steve Garnett, Mark Benioff, Polly Sumner, uh, Ray Lane, obviously Larry Ellison. Um, but there, we didn't probably realise at the time uh, they were number one, very talented entrepreneurs, company builders that typically deliver triple growth every year. So 100% compound growth. Um, and growth is, is something that you get addicted to in terms of companies and success. Um, but what we developed there was playbooks of how to build and grow companies, uh, irrespective of geographies, boundaries, sectors. Uh, and I was very lucky then I got the chance to put that into practice in a startup uh, in California where we put it on the NASDAQ after four years as a unicorn. Uh, we didn't know it was called a unicorn then, worth a billion dollars, worth $2 billion actually in the fintech sector. Uh, and then I, you know, curious whether these playbooks would work coming back to the UK, a bit more traditional, conservative UK. And they worked stunningly well. Uh, a company called public company called Microfocus on a huge turnaround. And then actually, I got the privilege to say, you know, could they work in the public sector? Uh, one of the oldest institutions, the British Civil Service, and they absolutely worked to treat there on the reform program and launching things like Gov UK to change and improve the life of citizens in the UK. And then similarly, a, a more stayed company in terms of at the time sage to kind of re-engender and re-infuse it and reconnect it with its customers um and again great success in terms of growth winning new customers winning the hearts and minds of the champions of the economy who are the small and medium business owners the entrepreneurs so um you know a lot of 
wonderful experience in terms of leadership. It's a huge privilege to work with some of the best people who have built great technology companies, creating huge opportunity and wealth for literally thousands of people and employees, but also for communities and just making a difference. And, you know, in terms of my, uh, one of the things really important to me is value-based companies uh, who have huge integrity, who have uh, a modus operandi of putting customer obsession at the heart of the business, but most of all, serving all stakeholders, including the community and the planet, um, and doing it the right way and creating that social purpose that becomes a bond of trust for all their stakeholders. Well, that is a heck of an introduction, Stephen. When I, I've met, I've had the chance to, to meet Mark Benioff, and, but never Larry Ellison. If I list, take those two names, you, you, you mentioned this playbook. Um, I have to know, or I feel like I need to know, what would you say is the, the, the master ingredient in this playbook or the great play? Um, probably the most important thing, because everything is derived from this, is a competitive vision. So you mentioned Mark Benioff. Uh, he's probably one of the best leaders I've known and spent time with. And build a company now, I think revenues this year are $30 billion uh, from a get-go, what, 20 years ago. Um, but fund, it all started, if you remember, when Salesforce started with a logo, kind of no software. Uh, and he had a huge vision to reinvent computer technology and software. Um, and really, that was all founded on the cloud. Uh, the, you know, just like we don't have a, a generator for electronic power in our house, we just plug into the grid. Uh, likewise, why don't we do the same thing with our devices and um, computer power and applications? So that was his kind of vision, compelling vision. You know, the, the next thing he did, which he just brilliantly is he uses a methodology of how to create the vision, connect it to the execution plan, embed deep values, think about a scenario plan around what obstacles you'll have to overcome, and then pick, you know, the dozen or so critical metrics, KPIs, whatever you call them, OKRs, uh, that actually track whether you're on, on track to achieve your quest. And I think building any company is a quest, it's a passion, it's a dream. And what you do, and you've seen with Mark, is many people who are the cynics would have said it's impossible what he's trying to achieve. And he surrounded himself with brilliant people. Uh, and he embeds values right at the heart of his business around equality, diversity, inclusion, and huge social purpose. So he's built the Salesforce Foundation that has a massively positive impact, giving tens of millions of pounds to charities. Uh, and, you know, five days paid volunteering for all his, what, he must have 40,000, 50,000 people working from now. Uh, and it makes a massive impact in the communities they serve, whether it's, you know, down in Africa or in Atlanta or even in San Francisco where there's a huge homelessness problem. He actually gets on the pitch of the community and says, we've got to make a difference. We can't just create wealth for just shareholders. We've got to create it for all the stakeholders, you know, including and have great relationships with suppliers, partners. But you really start with customer obsession, building customer excellence in everything you do, never let a customer down, and embed that customer ethos at the very heart and the DNA of the company. Uh, and then obviously hire great people, give them a great social purpose. We connect them to the mission and the vision and the vision. Um, to be hugely successful and empower them in the appropriate way. 
to allow them to be successful. And I think, you know, I'd say he's touched the stars, honestly, and, he, and people who have worked there uh, probably have had a, the best time ever. They've implemented the playbooks. They've seen them work in real life. Um, and they work, you know, and, and very little is left to chance. Uh, and when I started, actually, way back at Oracle in the 80s, we'd fly into France or Germany, and they'd tell us, well, actually, things are different here. Uh, you're sort of American kind of culture and values and programs probably won't work here. And you know what? You know, we spend time, we build relationships, and we gain trust. And these programs work all over the world uh, with very little. Obviously, they're done in local language. Uh, and obviously, if there's any difference in the regulatory requirement, they're, they're very sympathetic to those requirements. But they're 90% plus consistent around the world. Um, so it all starts with vision. And you've got to have a compelling vision as a leader. And then, you know, you've got to bring people with you around that and, and create the rallying cry that really connect the heads intellectually, the hearts emotionally and the social purpose. And then that means that you've got teams that put their hands to work and build great companies. So I'm, I'm listening to you and, I'm, and I've had the chance to work in many countries as well. And I, I wonder why it is that this is almost considered an American approach. And yet, I also think that there are some things that sound rather American as an approach and having that, the idea of that ballsy vision. Um, oftentimes, there's, you're, you, you, as a big idea person, you can get shot down very quickly. Oh, you're... You're off your you're off your rocker. What that that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Or you'll never make it. Or how are you going to get money for that? And these types of things are are more likely to be heard, I would say, outside of the United States. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I think if I you know I was very lucky. I implemented these playbooks as the leader. Obviously, in California was where I started. Uh, but I brought them back to the UK to some very traditional old companies who lived in a world of analysis paralysis and disconnected from customers. Um, and the playbooks work, the leadership talent work, the development work, the communications work, the detailed end result planning work, every, every part of the playbook, even down to granular levels, like what should be the sales compensation plan for a, a direct salesperson or a partner manager. And I'm not saying that everything has to be prescriptive, but if there's a model that works consistently and delivers great results and builds great culture, then why on earth would you try and you know recreate and build everything from scratch? It just doesn't make sense. And then obviously, I guess the final area was a 200-year-old institution, the British Civil Service. And again, when you think about these amazing civil servants who left universities, some of the best universities in the world, to go and change the world because they believe in public service ethos, as a leader, the critical thing is you've got to reconnect them with that mission of public service ethos and how do we improve the lives of citizens. And things like GovUK was transformative, where we try to turn government on its head and break down the silos of all these different departments. You know, you have to deal with the tax man or you have to deal with your driving license people uh, and eradicate paper. So remember the old car tax disc, but really build government systems around the user. What's the user need? Um, but it, it, the playbooks worked equally well there and it's around vision, compelling vision, leadership, 
what I would say directly to answer your question is I think there's a higher level of ambition and aspiration that comes through in the US where you know, actually people get on board and people are less critical. I, you know, I think maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just our psyche in Britain that we've got a great sense of humour, but with that comes a, a healthy level of cynicism. And the, the role, particularly in the UK, of the press and media where there's, you know, you get this kind of, if you have someone leave from a village and they go out and become a hugely successful entrepreneur, you know, the whisper in the village is there's something wrong with them, something dysfunctional. You know, we have a great capability in the UK to cut down the tallest poppy, uh, whereas, you know, in the US, we'd celebrate their success uh, and get behind them and then they'd become role models and then, you know, people would want to clone themselves around them and, you know, even people like Elon Musk, uh, who is an exceptional leader, wealthiest man in the world, he will influence probably thousands of young kids today saying, yeah, I'd love to be Elon Musk. And in the US, that will, will drive sort of role model behaviour from the next generation, two generations down. We, we could do better in the UK on that, I'd say. And I'd say the same travelling around mainland Europe. I think there's that healthy sort of um, scepticism, particularly of Americanisms, but there's an awful lot to celebrate about the American culture, you know, the field of dreams type culture. And when you're uh, an entrepreneur, you want to change the world for good. You've, you've come up with this big idea um, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the cure for cancer, but it's fundamentally going to change the lives of consumers or the people you serve, the customers, and make their lives better. And that's the mission, the vision that you want to kind of connect to. And I think actually just a, another thought related to this is it encourages you as a leader to become a great storyteller. Uh, we tell the stories of customers. And I remember just as an anecdote at Sage, when I went there as CEO, you know, the revenues were flatlining. We were losing customers. We hadn't innovated. We hadn't invested in the product. We actually hadn't really invested in, you know, being connected and serving our customers. So there was loads of cultural things and no criticism of the people. It's just like, you know, you get into managing status quo in older companies. And when that flame dies in terms of growth, it's a different culture within the company. When you're growing, you're hiring people, you've got promotions, you've got bonuses, you've got all the things that growth is good. And we said, you know, you either grow fast or you die slowly. And for companies, that's a reality, especially in technology, because someone else will eat your lunch. But I got the 200 top um, leaders together in Sage within four weeks of me turning up for a company meeting for a couple of days. And the first question I asked after introductions was, you know, put your hands up if any of you have seen the customer in the last month. And I was pretty shocked that only five hands went up. And in that room, I had country leaders, I had heads of sales, I had heads of marketing, I had heads of customer success um, or customer services, they call themselves then. And only five people had spoken or seen the customer in the last month. And, it, you know, that says that we have something deeply flawed in this company where we kind of need to really transform it and really reconnect everybody in this room to customers. You know, whether they work in finance or whatever function they work in, they don't just have to have a sort of sales title in their name. We have to connect the whole, in that case, 15,000 people 
with a mission of serving these heroes of the economy, these small and medium business people. When you, and when you go out and meet them, you know, you go to Birmingham or you go to Atlanta or you go to Sao Paulo and you see that this is a life of blood, sweat and tears for these business people. And they, they're living their own dream, whether it's a florist or it's a retailer or it's a chain of coffee shops or it's a chain of pubs and restaurants or a manufacturing company. You know, they are passionate about their life and their life's effort to build their business and be the best they can in their business. And, you know, as a supplier to them, you have a huge, I felt, responsibility to innovate and give them the best technology and allow them to run their business rather than worry about technology and really just, you know, let them spread their wings and fly like eagles towards their vision and their dream. Uh, and their business success. So it's it's that whole narrative. And, you know, I used to go around, you know, probably in the first 90 days or so, a thousand customers myself. And I just brought stories about, you know, a florist in Birmingham or uh, a manufacturer in Manchester or up in Newcastle where we had 2,000 people working. Just to reconnect everybody in the company with the sense of the mission and the vision and how we're trying to improve the life for these business heroes of the economy who create all the jobs out there and the prosperity and are vital to their rural and urban communities. So I think, um, yeah, I'd say definitely the US, I think, are unleashed and unbridled in their passion for ambition, aspiration, and express that incredibly well in leadership. And I still think in the UK, we've got a bit of a fear of failure. Um, whereas great companies tend to have a culture where they fail fast, learn quickly, and build build product market fit that really makes a difference to their customers. That ability to connect with, listen to customers, something I've I've listened or thought about a lot in the past, and and I have two anecdotes. One is when I went to work for a very very, in fact, the largest bank in France. I had the CEO and his 12 cohorts uh, for the executive committee. So this is, you know, I think it was about 30 billion euro size company. And one of the things I suggested we do is we work on the customer journey. And they're, yeah, 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 of course. So, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to get in the shoes of the customer to which the, the CEO then said, well, what's, 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 how, how do I do that? Hmm. Yeah. I think, and it, you know, actually someone who's one of the first marketing directors at Oracle, um, a great man, sadly now passed away, much loved friend, Mike Evans, said to us all uh, a moment, and he did a big presentation around change and connecting with customers. He said 5,000 years ago, the Egyptians buried people in pyramids. And sadly, today, most modern organizations bury people in pyramids. Um, and that's just so sad and so true. And actually, it's so disempowering for brilliant colleagues to be disconnected. And many, you know, when we reinvigorated Sage and Microfocus and reconnected everybody to the customers, I'll give you an example of Microfocus. Again, in the early days when I turned up, they'd come up with product roadmaps, no customer input. I go and see customers and they do bug lists and tell us, we talk, complained about this ages ago, two years ago. And literally I'd go into product management and find it on someone's hard disk. We had all this amazing golden nuggets of customer feedback that we just sat on 
And then I go to product management meetings and they're just analysis paralysis. And, and someone said to me, actually, you know, we had this, uh, they just said we had the same conversation and we made the same decision 18 months ago. We've done nothing about it. Every time we go to a meeting, we have the same conversation, same old, same old. And it was really clear to me we needed to turn the company's head upside down and reconnect. So we got companies like Tesco and Walmart in our offices. I got them to talk at all-hands meetings where every month I get all the company together, all-hands meetings and televise it across the world. But we'd listen to the customer stories of why we're fundamental to, say, Tesco's stock management system and why they wanted to move it off mainframes into, you know, cloud sort of based computing at the time or as it was then, Linux. Um, so we just got loads of storytelling to customers. And then, you know, we, we, we talked about the vision. And then that time, it was inconceivable because the company was declining. We had mass customer acquisition. It was the, the revenue was like a falling knife. It was in free fall. Um, and I said within 90 days, because there were brilliant customers that I met who desperately had compelling business needs that they wanted to serve their stakeholders much better. And we plotted out a way with the team to be at the heart of that. And we thought that we could triple the company in three years, you know, from a declining company. And actually the team put the plan together with um, a, a like three day offsite. And then we went back to the whole company at the all hands meeting about two months later and presented this three by three plan where we're tripling the company in three years. And the company at that time was on its knees. And I promise you, there was complete disbelief at that all hands meetings. And, you know, this is down in Newbury, England. Um, there was great intellect in the room. People had come down from Oxford down the A34 to work there for 20 years, but no one believed. And then we set the metrics around what that would look like month one, month two, month three, month four. And we started hitting the metrics and the revenue then recovered within 90 days to start growing. In that first year, we did almost 20% organic growth. Um, within three years, we tripled the company in terms of revenues. Um, within three years, the stock price for shareholders had gone up sevenfold. So from like 70 pence to over five pounds, it was the best performing stock in the UK. Um, and then, you know, with all these things, it's amazing success has many followers. And you create this flywheel of positivity where people know you have very high integrity. Uh, you know, you do the right things and you completely move the axis of the company towards the customer. And by the time I left the company, we had, we changed the engineering floor and product management floor to have all these um, sort of uh, sprint rooms which are all open plan, really great working environments. And we had customers in every one of those sprint rooms, two-week sprints, for actually co-developing the product to make sure it met the customer's needs. And, you know, and I know from people in the company who ran product management, they found that so much more rewarding, invigorating, and satisfying to know immediately in real time what the customer feedback is rather than this kind of glacial experience that many British companies still suffer from, where there's this disconnect from the customer. You know, having the customer in the room is so powerful. You can't always create that. But having the CEO leading the charge, back to your French bank story, you know, again, the CEO uh, could easily do visits to Bordeaux, Montpellier, uh, Aix-en-Provence, 
to actually go and meet customers and do little, you know, fireside chats where you get customers in, have some sandwiches, have a glass of wine if they want to late in the day and just say, what's the customer experience? What are you experiencing? What's the good things about the bank? What's the bad things? What do other competitors do better than us? Let's talk about BNP. Uh, all these sort of folks uh, that you have, and maybe start up challenger banks. What do they do well? Because I really want to make sure that we're just serving you the very best we can. And again, not uh, not having you worry about financial security because your bank's kind of in the slow lane. We want to be at the leading edge. We want to be an innovator. We want to be there for you throughout your life. We want to have customers for life. We want your children to come because we've got the best mobile banking service. We've got the best savings plans for them to get them through college, whatever it is. And when you hear CEOs do that, it just gives them such rich material to take back into their executive meetings for internal meetings or hands meetings to tell customer stories because you know, these customers, like all of us, are just human beings who want to do the right thing. Um, I want to have a fantastic service from our bank. And um, it's exactly the same in a technology company, in a retail company. And the more and more I see CEOs out there in the trenches with customers, they're the CEOs that you would actually want to gravitate towards in terms of joining those companies, backing those companies, invest in those companies, because they'll be the successful companies, they'll be the winners. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Makes me or reminds me of the work that I've been doing. I have a chance to work a lot with the, the company called Pega Systems. Yeah. And Alan Treffler, the CEO, is, is someone who absolutely looks towards the customer and embeds the customer in his Pega World conference and such. And, uh, and then secondly, I was thinking about another French company for which I worked for 16 years, where we would do lots of road trips to see customers. And yet we were in the beauty business. These trips were as manicured as could be. And one of the qualities that one must look to is not just visiting a, a client, but having the humility and the respect of the customer to listen deeply and not say, oh God, what's he rambling on about? Or, or why is he complaining about my product? Or, or, or saying, or is he just saying platitudes because I'm the CEO and he's a lowly hairdresser? Yeah, so, so I, you're absolutely so spot on with what you say there. And Alan Treffler, rock star, uh, hmm. as well as a brilliant business leader, you know, I got to know him out of Boston when I was in California. Brilliant, brilliant leader. Uh, built a great company. Also a really interesting character because he's a chess grandmaster. I know that. So, so my, my uh, son is a chess and chess player and coder. So I've, I've, I've been angling my son to try to replicate Alan's sort of approach. And, and actually, the other thing, um, 
my experience of the greatest leaders, and I use Benioff in this, and the most successful, they are incredibly compassionate, warm, wonderful human beings. Alan Treffner, I'd absolutely put in that category, wonderful person, high integrity, high trust, does the right thing, you know, uh, embedded within the culture of that company, bigger system. So a lot of respect there. I think also sort of coming out the pandemic, I think we're going to move into a world where trust has to be at the heart of every relationship. Uh, and particularly, you know, we had a world where control freaks wanted everybody in the office and in the old days you had clocking in, clocking out. Uh, then you had the pandemic and everybody worked from home. Uh, and now we've got a lot of companies who are quite schizophrenic about what is the model that they should explore. And obviously, you know, my view is go and talk to the people because people are smart. Go and talk to your employees and make sure that you build a, a fantastic environment for them to thrive and be the very best version of themselves but to do that sometimes they're invariably going to be working from home so you need to have that bond of trust and if you have that trust I, again i think you find that people just excel and always um exceed their potential and i, I believe again you know listening you talk about that uh, one of the things we we did in every company I've run actually is bring leadership development to the fore and everybody going through leadership development, including myself. And actually the other thing that I thought was really important is the leadership team have to deliver the leadership development content. So if we're, you know, for example, we used to have this phrase, um, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So what is the model? Again, playbooks, what's the best model for getting feedback? And interestingly enough, I think the only country in the world where they don't value feedback if it's given appropriately is China. So every other country, based on human psychology, appreciates feedback if it's given constructively. So we had little models of, you know, every meeting that this was. We had the training. Then we, if we went to investor meetings with investors, pop up to Edinburgh, we go to see Standard Life or Aberdeen. Afterwards, the CFO and myself kind of we said what worked well because again you do a standard sort of structured presentation or you do a Q and A. Uh, so what worked well? What did we do well? What could we improve for next time? Even better if um, you know what didn't work so well. And just be very honest. It's, it's no ego. No, don't just leave your ego at the, the door. Uh, it's not a personal attack, but how do we improve? Because, again, I think to build great companies, you need to have a learning environment where people get care and feeding around their not mental health, not physical health, but also, obviously you have to have those, but also their learning journey as well. So I think uh, I, I am a big believer in thinking about colleague for life, uh, when you start working in one of the companies that I've led, you know, you may choose to go on, you may choose to be an entrepreneur um, and build your own business. Fantastic. But you need to know if you're a top performer, you're always welcome back. And even if you aren't and you go elsewhere and you're very successful, we need to say that you're part of the alumni because you're always going to be a spokesperson for the company and you'll tell people what the company is like, what the culture is like. So you really need to have that soul for a company where if the leadership has a compelling vision developed with the team the leadership listens to people both customers employees suppliers partners local community and then acts on that 
um, then I think it's very powerful. And listening, you're so absolutely spot on. You know, it's a two-way process. And I think there's always a danger, particularly the more successful you are, um, that you start believing your own PR. And I think that's where for CEOs and founders and boards, they need to go out and talk to colleagues, employees, and they need to go and talk to the disruptors and the mavericks, not just the people who just tell you what you want to hear, because you need to have that reality check. But the best way you do it is just, you know, just be yourself, non-threatening, just want to listen, ask big open questions like kind of what's the experience of being a customer of Microfocus or Sage um, and see what that is like and you'll get great feedback and then act on that feedback. And as obviously a leader, I think there's three critical qualities you've got to have is you've got to be decisive, you've got to be really good at prioritization, but most important probably is you've got to bring the team with you. And part of that is you do the listening, then you put that in the mix of priorities. And again, if you're not going to do anything about it, just go back and say, look, we've got so much on our plate. What you said is really valuable, but we're going to have to come and look at that in a year's time. But just because we've you know, just got so many critical priorities and, and we'll explain what those critical priorities are, but your feedback is incredibly valuable. And then in a year's time, say, we've done it. We've sorted out your problem or sorted out what you, you gave us feedback on. So... <laughs> so many things in what you say, Stephen, it's fun. Um, wanted to pick up on, on this idea of, of this decisiveness and prioritization. For me, they are kind of one and the same thing. And the way I frame that is that if you have a solid and well-understood purpose, the prioritization is sort of self-made at some level. And then you are decisive around that because you are integral to your purpose. Question for you is to what extent... Um, how do you define doing good? Uh, because doing good, I could be doing good for the shareholders. I could be having my employees have money for a second house. Yeah. Is that doing good or how do you define purpose? I think um, that's really one. You know, I'll give you a real life example. Um, it's very clear to me when I was in government that most Western governments, if they were businesses, they'd be bankrupt. They're hugely debt-ridden. Um, and sometimes they, in some countries, really get on the pitch to fix some of the social deprivation, social mobility, the homelessness problems. You know, there's a lot of very, very critical issues. And, you know, I think with the cost of living crisis, you see the families in poverty. Do they eat or do they heat? And all these things is uh, a sad world. So I... I was very privileged to spend the time uh, as chief operating officer of the UK government. I just saw the level of debts that the UK government had, and obviously in the pandemic, has got three hundred billion worse. Um, and our, you know, future generations will have to pay that off. So what it told me is actually, you know, if there's massive deprivation out there, there's poverty, there's poverty of opportunity. Um, then, and sadly, in the last 10 years, since the credit crunch, the richer got richer and the poorer probably got, in some countries, poorer, then it means there's a platform for companies to step into that vacuum and make a massive difference to the communities they serve. So, um, again, you've got to prioritise, but I think companies have got to have social purpose. So to answer your question, number one, I believe that building great companies is all about 
obviously having a compelling vision, you know, making sure the execution plan achieves that. Everybody understands their role, total alignment in the company, including the board, uh, and then putting the customer at the heart of the business to really make the customer a hero. Um, if you do that and you serve customers brilliantly and you hire the best people and build a, a culture that people are really proud of and thrive in, then you've probably got two sides of the perfect coin, customers and employees. And obviously you need to do the right thing in terms of how you treat suppliers, how you work with partners. Um, and then I think there's a big responsibility for companies to reach out to their community because I, I found it, I'll be honest, we had a great office in the Shard. But I found it really uncomfortable walking out the Shard at night after a lovely day in the office and seeing people at the age of 25 living on the streets of London. My personal belief is any civilised society shouldn't be able to call themselves a civilised society if they allow people to sleep rough. And I think, you know, a roof over your head should be a basic human right. So one of the things, and I think this is where you've got to be careful as a CEO, you can't have your own pet project. So we actually polled our employees about what are the things they really care about. And it came down to a couple of things, um, domestic violence um, and around uh, equality, around gender, diversity. And the other thing, it came around youth and giving youth an opportunity to break for particularly people from disadvantaged backgrounds. So we created the Sage Foundation that became a multi-million pound foundation where we notionally gave like 2% of our free cash flows, uh, but also we gave up five days paid volunteering. So that's 75,000 days a year around the world. Uh, and we gave free technology um, to not-for-profits as well to allow them to run their business really efficiently and spend all their time and all the funds that they collected from their charitable donations on the causes that they serve. Um, so we have a simple concept of like two plus two plus two um, internally, 2% of free cash flow, 2% of all employees' time goes to volunteering paid by the company and two free software licenses for any not-for-profit in the world. Um, and then we got the, the team to decide what are the big issues they want to fix. And, and the team down in South Africa, you know, did around the youth agenda help build schools in Soweto in the townships uh, and help go out to do coding clubs um, down in Atlanta. Actually, there's massive deprivation, poverty, and still significant racial segregation and divides. Um, so they actually helped in food banks. Up in Newcastle, there was a problem around youth homelessness. So we talked to the council, the local charities, and there was about, I think, about 250 sofa surfers when we started. And, and uh, three years into the project, they got the number of sofa surfers and people, young people sleeping rough, 18 to 25-year-olds, down to about 65. So they're the sort of things where, you know, I think companies can make a massive difference and CEOs by creating this platform where it's okay to have social purpose embedded right at the heart of the company. And I think those companies will have higher productivity, higher engagement, high success. And I went, you know, you've got to lead it from the front. So I went on these volunteering days. And, you know, when there were the floods in Northumbria, we put a few buses together with employees on the buses to go and help old people move their sofas up to the top floor so they didn't get flooded. So it's things like that where you have sort of when there's a crisis, like a situation, whether it's a tsunami, whether it's floods, or whether it's a natural disaster, 
where you have literally turn on a dime and move really quickly to engage the employees and make a difference locally. But also you have sustaining programs where you allow the employees to pick what are the big issues they really care about. And there's, you know, probably like you, if you if you get me, um, there's so many issues you care about. There's so much poverty and injustice in the world. It's, again, how do you prioritise what really is meaningful and important to the people we served, in this case, my colleagues, and they sort of voted on it, they elected it, and I gave it my wholehearted support, and it made a massive difference to communities. But also we found, you know, when I did my fireside chats with people who joined the company, 40% of them, I just asked them, you know, why did you, in this case, Sage, why did you join Sage? 40% of those new starters, Gen Z millennials, said actually the Sage Foundation was probably the biggest factor for why we joined the company, because it's clear this company's got a very strong social purpose um, and you put purpose almost above profit, which is fundamental. And you absolutely obviously care about customers, but you care about the communities you serve. And that's why we joined Sage. And then we found it a massive engagement tool, massive retention tool, um, and it became a model for other, other companies. And the final thing I say is, uh, I went on, you know, actually we cleared parks. We did loads of different things. We, uh, there was a girl guide space where they haven't been able to use this camp. So we had 400 volunteers go and clear it for a day, which, you know, I was pulling out Russian knotweed and all this sort of stuff. And I, I'm not very competent at that sort of stuff. So I was just directed. I was just one of the team. But the really interesting thing is loads of customers came on that and loads of our partners came on that as well. And it was probably the most bonding event. You know, you can do big conferences, you can have the NEC, the O2, but actually going to do good that changes people's lives in the communities with your partners and customers is a very humbling uh, and hugely rewarding experience. Again, so many thoughts, Stephen. So first observation, I love the fact that in your storytelling, you have the three by three and then the two by two by two. Um, that's a, a master class for anyone listening on, on how to tell stories. Secondly, I love the fact that you roll up your sleeves. It reminds me of a friend of mine whose father was a colonel, and he was proud to show me a photograph of his father, colonel, uh, pushing a jeep out of mud in something like Botswana or something. Uh, and uh, mud all over his face because um, the, the 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 wheel had spurred, you know pushed the mud everywhere spattered the kernel everyone said oh my god and uh, he said come on that's what we're doing that's what's called rolling up my sleeves and being with do in the shit and then on your purpose and profit interesting thought which is profit after purpose profit through purpose but if you have no profit you serve no purpose. That's how, do you, how do you manage that? So uh, it's actually the most important thing for a leader. If you have a compelling vision about how you're going to change the world for the better, the good of your customers, and you hire great people, rock stars, A-star a people hire rock stars, and you empower them and you align them behind the common vision, then you're going to have a brilliant high-growth company. Uh, and you know, we used to say growth cures all evil, so it's not quite true. And I've said before, grow fast or you die slowly. But when you're building that high growth rocket fuel company where people are really engaged, serving customers, delivering a vision, you know, your shareholders are going to be clapping from the sidelines because they'll be richly rewarded. But what you shouldn't do 
is think about how do I drive the short term? How do I drive profit over purpose? And how do I spend life on just shareholder return? Because they're the byproducts of building great companies. You do the right thing. You build a great company. You put the heart and soul into customer obsession. You hire great people. You just, you know, fuel their energies and you support them with great leadership development, a great culture, really strong values. Um, things like speak truth unto power, do the right thing. You know, these values where people know that they've got the license to challenge anybody, including the CEO, um, creates a fantastic, vibrant uh, meritocracy where people really feel valued. Uh, and you, you obviously go the extra mile in terms of physical, mental health care support, um, you know, loads of stuff. Again, we've done, uh, we had mental health first aid officers just trained like physical first aid troughs and people watching out for each other. Because you are creating, you know, exciting companies where people love being there. But there's a risk that they get so excited about the vision that they kind of, you know, put themselves and, and potentially even risk burning out. So you've got to put some safety valves in there to, to make sure that everybody's sort of feeling responsible for their colleagues. And it's not just some people who sit in HR who take responsibility for that. But I, I, I would say really directly to the point, if you, if you focus on the right things, um, build a great plan, plan to deliver that vision, empower your people, put customers at the heart of it, you will deliver outstanding returns, superior returns for your shareholders. Um, and, you know, the experience I had when I was at Sage, the, the stock price flatlined for years and went down. When I joined, put the team together, effectively put the playbooks in place, uh, innovated the company, you know, the cloud revenues grew from like 2 million in three years. They were about half a billion dollars. So exponential growth in terms of success. Uh, and the share price doubled. Uh, you know, microfocus, I told you the story there. We wanted that kind of how do we triple the company in three years, the three by three program. The share price went up by sevenfold. So we literally every year I kind of visited um, the investors in Edinburgh. They just said, you're the best performing company in our portfolio. Uh, but we never, ever sat down and said, how do we drive short term share price improvement? No way. And actually, I'd say this is a, a difference in philosophy. It's a much bigger conversation. But um, there's almost like a drug addiction in the UK fund management institutions, no fault of their own, but they've just been used to it through the years on dividends. Whereas great management teams and board actually probably shouldn't pay dividends because every dollar of profit should get reinvested in growth. And only management teams that run out of ideas on how to grow do things like special dividends and increased dividends. Because if they knew how to grow and they could deploy that capital effectively to fuel further growth, that's what they should be doing. And therefore, you know, you've got a binary choice. You've got a lot of fund managers in the UK who are income-based and they just search for companies with great dividends. And that's the way the whole kind of status quo has worked. But where you have exceptional companies, they tend to be growth companies. And uh, would you, you know, for you, would you want to have a 3% dividend from a company that's flatlining its stock price and flatlining growth? Or would you prefer a company growing at 60% per annum 
And if you grow any revenues at 60% per annum and your net promoter scores with customers is 80 and customers are raving fans and advocates, in reality, your share price is probably going to be going up 50, 60% per annum. You know, where would you like to put your money, your investment, your pension? Uh, and to me, it's pretty clear. And that's why the FTSE 100 flatlined for, what, five years? Been around six, 7,000. And that's why even with the recent correction in the public markets, the S&P and the NASDAQ can perform much better because they tend to reward growth companies. And there's a high proportion of high growth companies within those indices. Yeah, well, div- dividends are synonymous with utilities or those type of heavily regulated businesses, I would say. Uh, so I totally agree with you. I wanted to get to one last piece, Stephen, which is um, we, you, you were talking about Sage, uh, the first meeting you came in, you held all these naysayers, and then fast forward success, as you said, attracts many followers. What about that? What was the pivot? What, where where do, do you feel that there was a specific time or something you said or an activity, something that happened that, that turned the, the tide for you going through the, the molasses of that? You know, the, obviously, there would have been a, probably a lot of people frowning saying who is this new guy what the hell is he he's just a yank or whatever and and what was it that got you to turn around and i'm wondering to what extent purpose might have been part of that or not yeah um so it's it's probably three things um uh, we've touched upon a couple of them one is i got the team to put the plan together and use the playbooks to do that so we facilitated basically a, a couple of days workshop where it was all about end result planning, about building the compelling vision, how that translates to changing the lives of these business heroes, these entrepreneurs, these small and medium businesses. And was that, and was what, that facilitated by a consultancy? No, we did it ourselves. So right. we, did, we did a lot of this. And I think it's much more authentic if you see you know, your chief people officer or your chief executive standing up and delivering the how-to and where this has worked before. And it's the same sort of methodology people like Mark Benioff use in Salesforce. And that's Cascade. He's used a methodology called V2Mark. Any any of the audience want to check it out, go online, check out Mark Benioff, V2Mark, vision values, uh, methodologies, obstacles, metrics. But it's, it's the same core essence in Sage. We call it VSGM, vision, kind of goal, strategy, uh, metrics. So the team put that together. So there's a sense of ownership that they own it, the senior team. So the top sort of two dozen leaders. Uh, and that involves all the companies from functional side and also the countries. So they own that and they're responsible for it. And that created a three-year plan that we shared with the board and socialized and that really created a storyboard for what we told the company as well in the internal meetings and all hats meetings. So kind of number one, that had the vision, it had the strategies, the goals, and how we're going to move customers to the cloud, how we're going to move to much more mobility, how we're going to innovate in the product, how we're going to make the lives of entrepreneurs so easy that they could spend all their time building the business and pursuing their dreams uh, and growing their customers and not ever worry about technology or outages or all those sort of things. And then the good news about that is it comes out with metrics. So what are the three-year metrics, two-year metrics, one-year metrics, next quarter metrics, this month's metrics? What are the six things that really matter? Like, you know, one of them was up customer net promoter scores. So at the time we had massive detractors. So we started measuring net promoter scores 
and, and obviously tracking upwards and we set targets for those and we talked about what what interventions and innovations we need to build to actually deliver on the targets. So that's num number one. Then the second thing is, um, you know, with all these things, I think naysayers and cynics, I welcome them because they give you a good challenge. And again, you never want to believe your own PR. So it's good to have that challenge in the room and you want to have a culture where you embrace that, you listen to it, and then, you know, evidence-based, is that substantiated? Because if it is, then you don't want to do something where you go careering off into a, a long-term failure. Um, and what you might do is in that is kind of create a little scope of a project where you start something or try something and test drive something. And if it doesn't work, you do kind of the feedback loop in a sprint to say, why didn't it work? Could it work if we change a few things? But if not, you know, it's great to shut things down as well. Um, and sort of have that culture where you fail fast and you move the team onto a successful project that they can you know, feel great about. So um, the metrics, though, every time how people start gaining trust is when they see you start delivering. So what are the month one metrics? You hit all them. Is this real? Yeah. Month two. When the, and the most palpable one was actually microfocus, where, you know, I think the year before I joined, the revenue uh, went down what, 15% or something, mass customer attrition, all these analysts writing about the company going out of business. The company was on its knees. And, you know, it was like a library when I walked in there. There was just no mood and people had been there 25 years and they, they were just destined to being kicked uh, because the market and customers and everybody at the press had sort of kicked them and they'd done actually two profit warnings in nine months. So kind of a, a world of hurt. But when they saw actually, you know, massive vision presented around three by three and then I was very authentic and honest and said, you probably won't believe this but just stick with me and stick with the team. And these are the metrics we've set for the next 90 days. So we, every time you set waypoints and then 90 days later, you go back and tell them what worked well, what didn't work well, what we hit. Fortunately, the first few times we arrested the decline. We started within 90 days growing again. By end of year one, we grow by organically by almost 20%. And then we set out the next year's plan and then people start believing. Obviously, if you know, if you keep on saying this is the metrics, this is it, how it achieves the vision, we tick off all the boxes, they're all in green, um, then people start believing and the cynicism dies away. And then the third thing, which is really important for the leader, is to make sure you're on the pitch. So you're not in an ivory tower. You, you know, things things like another example, when I turned up at Sage, the company had a private jet. You know, what are we thinking? What are we thinking? I, I went to Dublin on, I don't know, Ryanair or someone, 70 quid flying. And the guy who picked me up had always worked with a company, lovely man, chauffeur. He said all the other CEOs come in on the private jet at this private airfield. And I just think we're, we're part of the people. We're not part of an elite. We're not part of an ivory tower. So when they see that the people at the top of the organization are just like them, just kind of, we, we all, you know, reality, we, this is a philosophical thing to say, we all come into the world with nothing. We all end with nothing. So what makes a difference is the journey and the quest of while we're here to make a difference while we're here and do the best we can. Uh, and, you know, create followers, do the right thing, build companies, build opportunities, build everything. We've talked around social purpose. 
But when they see that and they see the CEO out with customers and the CEO on Twitter or LinkedIn talking to customers and posting videos of customer, good news and bad news. You know, what's working well? What are they upset about? What are competitors doing better than us? Just bring in every real conversation around the customer life, a day in the life of a customer into the room. Um, then I think it makes it very authentic and very real. And people, again, gravitate towards trust and authenticity at a particular time, you know, whether it's in the US or around the world, where probably trust from people like politicians is declining. Uh, and in chat, I think it's the case, 70% of employees say the person they trust most is their company CEO. So that places a huge level of responsibility on chief executives, uh, board members, executives team to not only walk the talk, but also show that they do it in the right way. Well, um, when you show your imperfections, it's an invitation for trust. I think, and vulnerability, the same idea, stiff upper lip, uh, be cast aside for certain types of vulnerability. Otherwise, also knowing how to buck it up and have a stiff upper lip when the ship gets hitting the fan is another useful time for, 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 um, for being authentic. And then you mentioned this idea of learning. Uh, well, you're failing fast. What I have observed is that people's ability to learn deeply after failing fast is typically cast aside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're not going to do that again. What, what it actually? What exactly should we not do again? What is it that we did wrong? And who, and also have owning up to the things that you did as the leader responsible for it shows that you know there's an accountability factor as opposed to well you did that wrong or or kind of blame somebody else. So I'm really upset because Stephen, I feel like we only just touched the surface. <laughs> I have. Wanted to get into governance. I wanted to get into yeah. doing a tech nation, but it was such a font of fascinating things. Certainly, if you have anything you'd like to say in, as a as a last parting piece of content, I'm going to ask you for your closing comment. Yeah, I just react to something you said. And I, I totally agree because when you either have a, uh, we could have do a whole podcast on crisis management because you know again, Sage, we had cyber attacks. Obviously, government, we, you know, really, uh, one of the things I did was I was chief uh, risk and information sort of uh, risk officer. Uh, and so there's there's a whole theme around that. But but when you are in a situation like I take the pandemic, it sort of breaks my heart that around leadership, we haven't taken lessons learned from the pandemic. And, and actually, you know, when I was in government, um, you know, we helped shut things down. There was a massive £14 billion programme called Connecting for Health where, you know, doctors weren't in the room on the user requirements. So no surprise, it was a bit of it. It was all run by loads of consultants and they're all nice people, but it was just everything about that programme was structured wrong in terms of leadership, who was in the room, what they were trying to do, they're trying to boil the ocean. What they should have done is, you know, iteratively build great stuff and deliver it to doctors to improve, ultimately, the care that they could provide patients. But very few organisations I've seen effectively do a really good fail fast lessons learn. How do we change? And then it institutionalises that learning culture in better processes, better systems, better development for their people. And, and just a couple of examples, you know, 
there's lots of terrible things in the pandemic. You know, obviously the personal human tragedy was immense. But what what did we learn in terms of transport that could shape the transport policy of the nation? People actually like walking. People like cycling. Um, air pollution reduced by 40%. You know, um, do we all need to jump on a plane? Can we go on Zooms? If I was a CEO or CFO in a public company now, I'd transform the T&E policy, the, the travel and uh, subsistence and, you know, the policy of travel and expenses policy, because you don't need to have all these kickoffs in Las Vegas. No, you don't. If you know people and there's that bond of trust, and I think people actually want to spend time with their families rather than, you know, time in Vegas or wherever it is. So, so it's a moment where companies, governments, people should think about what do we want to change where we've had learns. Another example, it made me proud that actually there were no homeless people in the first pandemic lockdown one. Now, it was a short-term fix and people were moved into hotels and stuff like that. But actually, it just tells us if you've got the political leadership and you've got the coalition of the willing to fix some of these systemic, massive social problems, they can be fixed. No doubt about it. And now it saddens me, you go back to Manchester or London and you see as many homeless people and younger people who have no hope and have no opportunity and no ladder that they can get out of a life potentially of social deprivation, substance abuse, theft, particularly with the cost of living crisis. You know, it's, it's, it's just sad we don't seem to, as human beings, have institutionally learned better. And, and obviously I could talk about this, it's a cathartic conversation, but why do we still in 2022 have genocide and war? And can't we learn to have much more responsible, respectful relationships with fellow human beings and nations where actually these are great civilizations and we should, as you know, traveling around the world, um, it's so dangerous to stereotype the Spanish or the French because there's 60, 70 million people in France and 30, 40 million people in Spain and everybody's an individual. But when you go around the world, you find people are good people. People love their communities. People are respectful. People have great civilizations. People love their families. People want to do the best for them and their families. We're very similar. The similarities outweigh the differences. And what we love from our political classes is good dialogue, good mature relationships, less point scoring. Um, and I just think uh, just a lesson we can learn in terms of leaders in business we want to create that culture where we really do want a vibrant learning culture. We really want to say, fail fast, pick people up, dust people down, say, let's give you a project where you can be really successful. But what did we learn from that? Let's do the retrospective. And how will that change how we address those projects in the future, whether it's a product innovation, whether it's a new customer uh, success program rollout, or whatever it may be, there are all lessons learned around um, how do you improve things? Because I think the reality I learned, and I've made tons of mistakes uh, in my own career, particularly as a first CEO when I was back at Cordian in California, I made lots and lots of mistakes there. And, you know, my own vulnerabilities, I think I can share transparently with everybody. 
uh, as I get mature and I think you become more and more secure in your own skin so you can talk about what you did wrong and where you made mistakes and how you do th things differently in the future. Uh, and I think that's a great strength to have in the culture of a company. And you should have the license from the CEO to be able to do that and have a culture where it's embedded, you fail fast and you learn from that. Uh, because the reality of life is, you know, I don't think any of us will achieve perfection on this planet. And some people believe in a, another life and maybe they'll achieve perfection there, who knows. But if, if that's guaranteed that everybody agrees we don't need to achieve perfection, all we're striving to do is be the best versions of ourselves every day. The best versions of ourselves as a CEO, the best version of ourselves as a salesperson, the best version of ourselves as a coding engineer in Ruby on Rails or whatever it may be as a product manager. So how do we do that and every day learn? Because if we do that, we are not only going to be making much more impact on the companies and the customers and the stakeholders we serve, but actually on a personal level, we'll get so much more enjoyment out of it. And the most important thing for all companies when they build them is you've got to have a sense of fun. You've got to make it fun to work because you spend, what, two-thirds of your conscious life at work. So you've got to love what you do and follow your heart. And that's the most important thing forever. So I'd add on to that beautiful advice to be the best person that you can be as a father, as a friend, as a spouse, as a person in general, even outside of work. Stephen, fabulous. How can people follow you, listen to you, read what you're writing? You obviously are quite active uh, at, uh, on Twitter, but on Tech Nation. What would be some of the best links we can send people to? Yeah, um, probably the easiest thing on any social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. It's very simple. Just follow me uh, at uh, handle S. Kelly, CEO, S-K-E-L-L-Y, CEO, uh, which has been a handle for 10 years, and I, I probably should change it sometime, but I'm not going to, so it's, it is what it is. No, I don't um, think you need to change it at all, Stephen. And I think uh, I just want to say also, I've listened to some of the other interviews you've done, and I think um, what you do beautifully is just encourage a very wonderful conversation between the people you have on the podcast. And I, I think I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm sure we all do. Uh, but it's lovely when I've listened to your podcast and you really draw the person in uh, and engage them in a rich, vibrant conversation about issues we all face or struggles we all have. And I think what you do through the podcast is, is serve the community and uh, provide sort of richness of care and feeding. And, uh, you know, keep it up because it's fantastic so i've really enjoyed the conversation and very honored and privileged uh, that you approached me to join uh, your podcast and i'll keep listening to other guests as they come on too because i've loved it deep thank you to Stephen, and of course must also give a deep thanks to janice gordon who put us together so thank you very much and from my studio audience a big round of applause thank you Stephen. Be in touch. Great stuff. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. 
You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mentordial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.